I think the direction that Australia is going is to be one of the most authentically inclusive places in the world for women, people with disabilities, for, for every minority. And, and I want to see that happen and I want to do everything in my power to be a part of that. I think every woman encounters imposter syndrome more so mm. than you know our male counterparts do. And we've all experienced that and it feels like we're all just out there sort of trying to make it work but not <laughs> really knowing if we yeah. are. And um, if you can see it, you can be it. And that just is everything that I think is important to me. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Beautiful people, this is our second dedicated International Women's Day episode, although really all our female guests pretty much fit that bill. (laughs) While I was up in Sydney, I was lucky enough to spend time with Madison Di Rosario, three-time Paralympian who is heading off for her fourth in Tokyo this year. Maddie made her Paralympic debut in wheelchair racing at just 14 years old at the Beijing 2008 Games, taking home three silver medals since then, as well as a string of other accolades and achievements. She is an incredible role model and advocate for the visibility of the disabled community, reshaping our perception of disability and truly going after your dreams. As you'll hear, she is delightfully bubbly, humble and articulate, and it's no surprise to me that she was named the 2020 Barbie Australian Shiro, that's she-hero, as part of Barbie's global role model campaign, inspiring women the world over with a -a one-of-a-kind doll. As one of my favourite childhood brands, I've loved learning how Barbie is inspiring the limitless potential of every girl, introducing different body types, hair, skin, and everything in between. And as you'll see in the episode image, Maddie's doll comes complete with her racing chair. Maddie's excitement and drive is absolutely infectious and I hope you enjoy hearing her story. Madison, thank you so much for joining the show. No, thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure to meet you. I'm so excited. So before we kick off, I start every episode with asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, particularly for people who do have a job where they're in the media or where there's lots of articles about you and it's easy to kind of create a bit of a glossy surface on social media. So breaking that down, what's something super normal or relatable about you? Super normal. Um, I am that person that at the beginning of the week goes and grocery shops and meal plans and is convinced they're going to do everything perfectly. And then I think every second night I end up ordering in. And at the end of the week before (laughs) grocery shopping, I have to throw out all of my vegetables because they've gone bad. Oh my gosh. I do that too. (laughs) All of us do it. I always wonder like, how does anyone actually get the right ratio between the buying and the using? Some people do. I don't know how. Yeah. I feel like my mom can do it every time, but it's totally impossible either like underbuy because I'm like no I'm being responsible and good or I get so excited by like I don't know like raspberries and buy like <laughs> all of them and then never manage to eat them and they're like $95 a punnet so they though? 
<laughs> it's a really expensive habit to enjoy raspberries. <laughs> so the first section is called Way TA, which is pretty much just revealing the whole journey. So not just the bit that people often walk into. I think people often work, walk into chapters of our lives and assume that that's kind of how we woke up, but there's always a huge journey to get there. So take us all the way back to Young Medicine and tell us what you were like as a child, which... Being only 26, you still are. (laughs) But, you know, growing up in Perth, what was it like? And I knew you were a dancer before Mm -hmm. you first got the flu. So tell us about, firstly, how that all happened and also what you remember from before. I don't really remember much from from before. Like, I've been in a chair basically my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't really have that transition period or or a traumatic event where, you you know, I, I speak to people who have later life injuries and it's a trauma, but for they feel like they've had two lives where, you know, I haven't. And it comes up a lot in conversation where people want to know, like, how having a disability has changed your life. But the reality is for most of us that it absolutely hasn't. Mm. It's just been all we've known. And it really is just this neutral thing. Like, it's neither good nor bad. It's just, you know, the starting point for whatever life we're going to have on top of that. And and I think that's a really important perception to change is we want to view disability as this negative thing and I feel like we have two ways of viewing it it's either as a negative or we try and put a positive spin on it where it's you know this thing happened but you are now such an amazing person for having like dealt with it or overcome it but in doing that the disability is still a negative thing so it's this weird spin that we want to have on it where I think if we view it as a neutral it just allows us to see the actual humanity in in every individual and so for me I I was three nearly four so it's not it wasn't a life-changing event by any means <laughs> yeah. um I, even asking you I was like what do you remember oh she was like three I don't no. remember anything from when I was three <laughs> absolutely not so it's, it's been that the whole time but actually I do remember dancing it's the one I don't remember walking or running but I remember dancing which wow. is kind of um bizarre yeah and I grew up playing sport with my sisters the whole time I have two sisters and we would just do everything together I remember playing netball with them and like my little sister is very tall and she was like the best person is it court I don't know the term for different sports she oh. was always the tallest like best player like, oh, like there. the center player yeah, they're I the one so. who kind of run all over everywhere yes. yeah and she was always brilliant and then there was me just being a little bit useless kind of like <laughs> off to the side but also loving it because I was just playing sport with my sisters and that's yeah that's kind of how we grew up and, and what all that was like I love that I actually was reading about your childhood and one of the things that stood out so much was that you didn't actually even notice and I love that you you know you were saying that disability should be more portrayed as neutral rather than good or bad that you didn't even necessarily notice that there was anything different and because you played sport with your parents and your dad was the coach and like you were playing all the sports with your sisters I love that you didn't really actually feel a point of difference until kind of after primary school exactly and and I think I didn't realize until I got a little bit older how incredible my parents actually were in that time Mm. because for them obviously they weren't four-year-olds and it was probably a traumatic moment for them Um, but that kind of never got to me or my sisters we never got to see kind of that emotional side of it and so it never became a real thing and Mm so both my sisters and myself it was I don't know it was never a moment that stood out as being particularly impactful and I'm so thankful for, for both my parents for that and I think despite you know no one 
tells you how to respond to a situation like that. But I'm so thankful that they naturally just responded in that way. And that's something that I, you know, I want to be able to to pass on to, to other people and, and to tell, you know, the, the parents of, of kids with disabilities, like the impact you have on your child and how they're going to view themselves going forward. It's so dependent on your reaction in this time. Totally. And, you know, I, I speak a little bit and I desperately want to get my mom in for some of them. So <gasps> I feel like she could deliver such a strong message from that side of a thing because yeah. she's just this powerhouse of a woman, like so logical, so so rational like a fangirl when I talk about her <laughs> this is so cute the look on your face is so beautiful I love her so much <laughs> where she could you know deliver how you know her thought process and stuff and, and it's such an important part that we don't hear about very much and yeah mm. I would love to get her up there with me I feel like if for International Women's Day you know you've, you're surrounded by an amazing mum but also a strong grandmother who raised seven kids like I feel like strong women has been a really recurring theme and just goes to show as well that it is your environment is so formative and it, your perception is absorbed from the way that people around you act and the fact that your family you know your parents would have before and after memories even if you don't but they were able to still create an environment for you where you were didn't feel like disability wasn't you know I think the lack of visibility on on how to treat the situation how to treat you how to treat the families it's something that you being out there speaking about and hopefully getting your mum out there one day to speak <laughs> about will be so useful for other people who are thrown into a situation. I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, we all deal with, I think, intense situations privately and talk about them mm. afterwards. And so it's all dealt with by the time we actually have access to information on how to deal with them. Right. Um, <laughs> way too late. <laughs> not the best way around this. Whereas I think, yeah, like just shining a much brighter light on these things. And and you're right. Like I feel like I was so like lucky to have such strong women in my life. And I know my mom got, you know, all of those qualities from her mom, mm. who is just this incredible woman. And the way I think my mom sort of handled her entire life without realizing it was just teaching us so many good habits. And, and how to do things and and one of the things that I'm so impressed by with her that I think like I've tried to apply to everything I've done without really realizing specifically what it was is her force and the way that she just changes her environment so she can be a better version of her and mm. she did it with with her job and before she had had us um she has three of us before she had us she had a nine-to-five job and loved it and always wanted to be like a working mom when she fell pregnant with my older sister she always said as soon as she could she'd go back to work because that was who she was and then she I think held like Alex for the first time and was like (laughs) no like this is my life now um but but she still did have that career side of her that wanted to do that but it didn't work with a nine-to-five anymore so she decided to find something that worked for her instead and and she's um Auslan is her first language my grandparents are both deaf and wow. so it's Auslan is her first language. Yeah. It's kind of funny when she's angry or having a fight with us, she'll revert back to like sign language if That's she can't find the word. <laughs> it's amazing. But she'd never used it in, in you know any form of job. It was it was just part of who she was. And she went back to TAFE to get a certificate to be an Auslan interpreter and she brought us with her. She had a, you know, kind of checked in first with like the teachers and was like, Do you mind if I bring my three children? <laughs> um, to hang out in the class. Exactly. And so she brought us she she got qualified and went into freelance work and so she was able to you know when we got a bit older drop us off to school be there to pick us up a work hours that suited her and and she did that for years and the industry kind of changed over time and it became something that she didn't love quite as much she didn't mm. think you know people being treated how she wanted to see and, and people being taken advantage of and and rather than being 
any kind of complicit in that, she opened up her own agency instead. Wow. And so now, what a woman! What a woman! And so now <laughs> she runs the biggest like Auslan agency in, in in WA, and she's branching out into other parts of the industry that she thinks need work. And it was never about changing the environment to be better for her. She just did it because that was the obvious process for her. And you know, the, the more people that I meet, the more I realize how unusual that was to not yeah. kind of just sit and let that happen. And I think she's instilled that in all three of us without ever realizing she was doing it that's just who she is and I'm so thankful that oh my that's gosh. my mom I can't wait to meet her one day I'm you like you'll have to her. take me home <laughs> <laughs> so I think that is one of the really hard things when you're younger is how to form your idea of what you want to be and what your career prospects are and you know what direction you'll even go in and it's amazing to have parents around you who are adaptable and aren't kind of putting pressure on you to be one thing forever but before we go there I, I want to just talk about the actual disability from a physiological perspective. Mm. So I read that it started from the flu and then turned into transverse myelitis and then resulted in scoliosis for a part of your childhood. Yeah, no, you totally nailed that. Oh, um, good. Yeah. <laughs> I know um, about transverse myelitis from house. I was like, oh, oh my I've God. I've that before. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I was like, it, I know that. <laughs> it's such an unusual one. So, mm. yeah, I, I had a strand of the flu. I actually wasn't even showing symptoms. Oh. Um, yeah, my body basically, like, attacked the flu and then just continued to attack itself and it attacked the myelin sheath around my spinal cord. And it works its way up so well. Um, I feel your collarbone or something. It was. And I actually feel terrible for my dad at the time. So my mum was out working and um, I came into the house. I was on the trampoline outside. And basically I was like, I can't feel my feet. And I was the biggest drama queen as a child <laughs> that he was like, you're making this up. Oh, and no. So- <laughs> And I don't blame him. Like, I was such a drama queen as a child. I would just, like, make up little situations. If, I didn't, if, if like, I was being mildly inconvenienced, I would make up a story so I could get out of, like, not a bad situation. So, like... <laughs> Sounds like me now. I feel like I haven't changed that much either. Yeah. Um, so, like, I don't... Like, oh, man, I'm not surprised. So, yeah, so that was basically it. And my body attacked itself. And it did get up to my collarbone. They managed to push it back down to about, like, waist level where it's kind of stabilised. And if you end up in a, in a chair with limited sensation before your growth spurt when that happens just because of all the I guess inequalities in your body um it does often like lead to scoliosis that's a very common thing kind of um with with younger injuries and so yeah when I was 12 I yeah had scoliosis I'm going to correct it and we waited until after Beijing because it's quite a a significant surgery that is quite a bit of time you know recovery time attached to it so basically right after Beijing I was the games ended in in September and I think in February you know I had this this surgery and I feel like there was so much build up to it because I understand it's very invasive and it's significant but it was kind of over so quick and I got back into life like incredibly quickly and and I feel like there was so much build up around like how this could change things but it really didn't it was just the benefits of like correcting you know a, a curve in my spine and then like life went on as per usual. Also, guys, just to interrupt at this point, she mentioned Beijing. She means the Olympics. She was like 14 years old. I know. If you're doing the math sitting there going, wait, what? She went straight from like zero to the Olympics? Yes, that is actually (laughs) what happened. So in between that, and particularly knowing that you did have scoliosis, and it is actually like it can cause a lot of pain. It's very like uncomfortable and, and also causes even further inequalities in like the balance of things because your spine is actually curved. Going into professional athletics is probably not what most people would think that you would go for. So how did that happen? And I actually read that you started wheelchair sports at 12 and hated it. So how did this all happen? Okay, so when I was about 12 
playing sports with my sisters, you kind of noticed the differences. Like everyone was kind of going through their growth spurts mm. and, and it became a little bit more difficult to sort of like properly keep up, I guess. And so we started exploring the wheelchair sports options. And basketball, I think, is the one that we all sort of tend towards. It's the one that we all know when we think of the Paralympics. And um, I am so uncoordinated. Ball sports are not my thing. Team sports are also <laughs> not my thing. So I was terrible at it absolutely terrible at it and my mom was kind of like let's keep going back it's a good team environment and I was like but I really don't like team sports like this isn't, <laughs> I just hate it it's this not my isn't thing. a feeling um <laughs> I'm not seizing my nose <laughs> exactly and um, <laughs> so we tried a couple different things tennis was one of them and you know just bits and pieces and um I was trying basketball for I think the third or fourth time and the coach a man named Frank Ponter who I was at the very first Paralympics ever. He was just like an icon in our sport. He pulled me to the side and basically said, you are terrible at this. <laughs> you are not an asset to us out there. But I have a track chair in the storage room. Do you want to try it? And I jumped in this race chair in the parking lot of um, of the basketball court and I just loved it straight away. And it was it was a secondhand chair that was built for somebody much bigger than I was. And so I was, had all this foam kind of around me to keep me sort of centered in it. And I loved it. Wow. And from 12 to sort of 14, like in most people's careers in sport are not two years long before they go to the Olympics, (laughs) you must have excelled extraordinarily like in a very short amount of time. So did you go straight into like full-time training or was the Olympics an actual goal or were you just like, I'm just going to do this as something on the side and you just happen to be really good? It wasn't, um, it was a bit of a combination. I, I loved it and I... You know, I I think I started working really hard on it just because I wanted to perfect it, I mm. think, with with no long-term goal in mind. It was there was never a part of me that was aiming for for Paralympics or elite sport. It was, you know, something that I was doing just for me because I I really enjoyed it and loved it. And I went to my first international competition which was over here in Sydney and I sort of saw what that world could look like. And I think I was about 13 at the time. And that's when I met Louise Savage, who's my coach now. And I think I saw what that world could look like and really wanted to be a part of it. And because of the lack of of, of visibility, I think in my sport, I'd never seen, you know, I knew who Louise was, but she was the only one I think that we Mm -hmm. knew. I didn't think that for me, that was even an option. I'd never really considered it. And after having seen firsthand just these incredible humans making this their career and and what they loved, I, I knew that I wanted, you know, I wanted that as well. And um, yeah, I came back, I was talking to Louise about it and we started, you know, training with the goal being London 2012 as the big one and whatever kind of came between, you know, now and then, you know, we would do. And a spot actually opened up for Beijing on the relay team, which is how all of that came about. And it wasn't a sure thing. And the way teams are selected, you kind of have your, your automatic selections happen a fair way out. And then your last minute selections happen about a month before you actually leave for the for games, um, not even. And that's, that's so close. It's so close. <laughs> and we kind of put this relay team together and there were four of us from three different states and the two that were in the one state were like Sydney and Newcastle so nowhere near each other and we were trying to fly every month to meet up and just try and like put together a cohesive team and you know we were we were pulling out some really good times and and we actually made it work but even then I think we were we were not sure how it was going to go the way they select teams is by medal potential and, and medal spots and so there was the option of sending four people for one potential medal versus one person for I think a throwing event was what we were kind of vying for and very last minute it, you know we got the call saying that we were selected and then it was on a plane to to Beijing it was very <laughs> rapid that's amazing <laughs> mind you you were 14 I mean like I'm thinking of you sort of as a 25 like basically your age now doing all this Paralympics, <laughs> jumping on a plane, like 14, he's so 
young. So before we get into, I really, you know, I mentioned before that I think NATA in some situations, it's easier to follow the chronology and cover all the sections at once, which I think is probably what we'll do here. So first, you know, being 14, being in school, and you mentioned that at the end of primary school is when you started to kind of notice differences. What was your experience around that time of realizing I am different? You know, my possibilities are different. I am about to start wheelchair racing. That is still different. There isn't a lot of visibility around disability options. And even the fact that it's called a disability, like I I think suddenly Mm -hmm. I I feel like, oh God, I just have so many feelings right now. (laughs) What was that like for you being so young, suddenly coming to terms with the fact that, you know, you'd gone into high school, you also had the Olympics on the side. Did you have body confidence issues come up? Like what was that transition like of realising, oh, this is a thing? Like in my family it never has been, but, mm-hmm. it, but it is. It was actually a really strange time, I think. is I mean, it had enormous challenges, but then also like enormous highs as well, but kind of from different sides. And I feel like the world's kind of never really met until I got a bit older. So I feel like going through high school, early high school is challenging for all of us. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> we throw in there like girls going through like early high school, like, the body image issues and just so much it's it's such a a time for all of us and I found what I found quite frustrating is I was doing these amazing things in sport on the side but none of my peers were really aware of of what I was doing Mm. and I could tell them about it and like they, they knew about it but because there was you couldn't really watch the Paralympics then the way you can now and you know no one ever you know saw me train or race when it came to like you know sports classes I was basically useless like it was on the ovals on grass it was like let's play like a dodgeball which isn't exactly my forte <laughs> you're like I'm just gonna watch basically so I was like I promise I'm very good at sport you just have to let me be in one that, that I can excel at I think this is you know at the time, I definitely didn't have the language for it or understanding of it, but I just felt like two very, very separate worlds where, you know, I was viewed so differently in this one in, in school and I had so many insecurities. And, you know, in this other one, I was really able to thrive and excel, but I, I couldn't find a way to bring them together because one just didn't have exposure to the other. So that was incredibly challenging. And then for me, on top of that, the the body image stuff started being more complicated um, because, yeah, the scoliosis started to develop. And, and I've never really had insecurities that came with being in a wheelchair. It was always like, you know, the lack of symmetry and, and how clothes fit and, you know, all those bits and pieces of it that I found far more challenging. And um, it was hard having, I think, a bad relationship with your body in that way. But then also in sport, you have to have such a fantastic relationship with your body. You need it. You know, you want to push it and you want to basically, you're going to ask it to, to hurt and reach its limit. And then, you know, the next day do it again for you. And you can't demand that of your body without having such a good relationship for it. And so, one half of me was wanting that and like loving and respecting it. And the other half of me was really hating the body that I was in. And so bringing those two together in a really healthy way took a lot of time. And so I think that was probably my biggest challenge kind of 12 to 15 um, was to make, you know, both those worlds really, really work for me. And at such a young age, I mean, I don't think many of us are in an emotional state to be able to do that now, let alone at, you know, 14 or 13 when you just, you're bodies and brains are mess. You're just, yeah, you're just no. a blob of emotion. Like it's <laughs> no, a disaster. Exactly. <laughs> That's so true. That's exactly how it felt. <laughs> and it's, I find that really interesting as well, that it had never actually been being in a wheelchair. It was more the asymmetry from the scoliosis that made you more self-conscious. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a part of that was I'd been in a chair my whole life. I'd never viewed it as bad. And going through primary school, being in a wheelchair is the coolest thing ever. Like yeah, kids I think it is that. so cool. And, you know, they want to jump in a chair and they you know it's just a a fun thing no one you know I'd never had any negative attachment to 
a disability over my chair and then the negative attachment starts kind of happening I think for me coincidentally when the scoliosis started to to develop and that's I think why I've attached it to it to the extent that that I did and I think it was as you get older the people around you start to have this kind of negative association with disability because we, mm. we learn so many different things and make those decisions and stuff. And I think that kind of all happened at the same time, which is why the negative part comes with the scoliosis and not so much the, you know, the chair as such. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit tied in together. Yeah, and you are, you're just such a good role model and inspiration for other people out there who do by default kind of see it as a negative thing, but learning that it doesn't have to be that way. You actually never felt that way. Exactly. And yeah. it, it's more like other people imposing that or like projecting it on you yes do you get that a lot in society that people kind of project this awkwardness around like oh are you okay and you're like I'm fine yes (laughs) yes and that's actually the biggest thing that you know I if I could see one thing change in in my lifetime it would be exactly exactly that it's um the social impact as opposed to like having a disability is neither here nor there the the biggest struggle of it is definitely external it's how society views you or even if you look at things like accessibility it's always things that are imposed on you it's not the actual disability that's causing problems it's you know the world around you not being designed for you and Mm. you know it's this when we view disability right now we do it in a way where that's what specifically what we're looking at and we're reducing an entire person down to disability and even if that person is portrayed very positively their entire identity is still wrapped up in that one thing and that's all we see and you know every conversation you know I feel like if I'm you know scrolling through like social media and I see someone you know in a chair or with a prosthetic I kind of stop and before I look at it I'm like if this article isn't about the disability I will be very surprised (laughs) and every time it is we're not saying hey I think you know actually Jockey just did a campaign and they've partnered with Paralympics which is amazing but um I was scrolling through and one of their campaigns has one of our athletes who who's the leg amp and you look at and there's just no mention of it and that surprised me and I I hate that surprised me because every time we see disability the, the content is also about it we're never just seeing it and then seeing like an entire person with no mm. attention being drawn to it. And I realize I'm saying that whilst having spoken about disability for the last like, no. 15 minutes. No, but I think the exposure is what normalizes it. Like you exactly. talking about it like this is what tweaks people in their mind to go, you're not a disabled person yeah. or a disabled athlete. You're just an athlete. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and, and the disability like makes up a small part of, of who I am. And I feel like it's one of those things that you don't so much learn from being told. Like I could get up, you know, in, in front of how many people and talk and, and tell you, you know, how to view disability. But that's not going to change perceptions as much as like having people with disabilities like in the workplace, like yeah. working beside and just normalizing that thing. Because I think the way we treat dis- people with disabilities is, is so... I guess, rooted in our discomfort around things we're not familiar with. Yes. If you haven't grown up with someone in a chair, you don't know how to... Navigate that. Yeah, or like get them out of it or can they do it themselves? Like you never want to be rude or seem like you're being belittling or anything. Exactly. And it's this thing, it always comes from such a good place, but it just ends up in like an awkward kind of interaction. (laughs) Um, So it's this kind of weird balance we're trying to strike, but just like constant exposure is is what's going to change that. So yeah, and right now we're moving in such a good direction and I'm I'm so thankful that sport is at the forefront of that Mm. and that I get to be a part of that where, where people with disabilities are like, you know, shattering that glass ceiling and changing perceptions and we're on your screens, we're on billboards, you know, we're in media at the moment. And and I love seeing that. I love seeing just in the time of my career and even just in the last five years, how much it's changed. And I'm so excited to see how much that changes before before I'm done. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> well, talk us through that career. Three Paralympic appearances, 
absolutely smashed it, taken home three silver medals. You're heading to Tokyo this year. <laughs> that, it's your fourth Paralympics. Like yeah. that is extraordinary. And you're like literally 26 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and in between that, so many other medals and you've got records at like uh, the World Para-Athletics, Com Games. Tell us about your career. What is it like to be in a stadium? What is it like oh to gosh. wear the you know, uniform and to be part of a Paralympic Games and to set, you know, what, what do you even feel when you see yourself on TV or you set a record and you know you've actually smashed a world record? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> that's, oh, my goodness. I'm, that's one of the, the most unreal feelings. I don't really have the words for it. I think <laughs> putting on the green and gold never stops being an overwhelming feeling I think people don't fully realize that when we're out there in the stadium and you know wherever it is in London in Rio in in, in you know Beijing wherever it is with when you're wearing the green and gold I feel like you really are taking everyone who's had some kind of impact on your journey with you there mm. and it's amazing doing that in front of a home stadium like I was so grateful for you know the Commonwealth Games experience um in in 2018 getting to you know do that and and you know win a race in front of a home crowd of Australians but you know I I think when we travel we're taking all of that with us and we feel the support when we're over there and you really do feel like you're a part of something much bigger yeah. and I race kind of in two separate ways like on the track for Australia but also like marathoning um professionally and and I love that but it's not that overwhelming feeling of being a part of something so much bigger which is what I love about about racing for Australia and and my team that I get to travel with really is like a second family they're you know the most amazing group of people that I'm so lucky that I get to kind of do this job with but overall the career's been you know so many ups and downs and I and I think it's changed so much from the beginning to where I am now and it's helped to I think kind of shaped me as a person in in so many ways and I feel like the way that I approach sport has changed so much between you know 14 year old me not knowing what I was doing um in the bird's nest (laughs) or in life or in life you're like a minute old that's give yourself some credit (laughs) um yeah and it's yeah it's gotten to shape who I am as a person and I feel very thankful for that how do you train? Like, what are your favorite distances? And you mentioned, I actually did read that, that you did the London Marathon recently. Was it recently? Yeah, I've done the London Marathon the last few years. Yeah, so you're long distance and shorter distances. Yes. So in, in wheelchair racing, we get to span, you know, more distances than you can um, running. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less impact on the joints and the training complements more distances. Yeah. So I primarily race marathons throughout the year. Oh. Um, that's definitely my main event. Um, but when it comes to a Paralympics, um, and a world championships, I'll race the longer events on the track as and, and up to the marathon. So 800, 1500, 5000 and the marathon. Oh my gosh. Is um, there a marathon in the Paralympics? Yes. Wow. I yeah. So it's on the on the last day. It'll be on the day of the the closing ceremony, um, and it's it's a it's a full on program. I've never done all of it before. In Rio, I chose not to race the marathon, um, and we started kind of the year after, really building into it which um, I think was a great decision in hindsight because that marathon started at midday and half the field pulled out because of the heat. So I think we made the right call with yeah. that one. <laughs> oh, wow. um, so yeah, Tokyo will be my first time racing a full program. And then Are you doing all of them? I'll do, yeah, four events with the last one being the marathon. So it's my first time oh. doing that. So we'll see how it goes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and how are you preparing for that? What does that involve? Is it lots of weights? Like, are you? It, obviously it's mostly your arms, mm-hmm. but from a technical perspective, like what is the technique of wheelchair racing? Or do you all have different techniques depending on how much upper body or how much lower body? Like are there, you know? Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, it, there's a few different kind of styles of wheelchair racing. And so the way I push, I'm I'm probably one of the smaller people like physically um, out there. And so my, 
my my technique is probably leaning towards being more efficient because I don't quite have the power that some of the, yeah. <laughs> the women out there have. Um, they're just incredibly strong humans. Um, so mine's a little bit more efficient, which I think lends itself to the longer events. And it's a little bit stressful because it means I get off the line very slowly compared to some of the others. And so mentally I have to prepare for the fact that like in an 800 for 400 meters of that, I'm going to be like at the very back and I just yeah. have to kind of fix that at some point. Yeah, um, you'll gain, you'll get yeah. gains. <laughs> um, but the actual training at the moment is about 10 sessions a week. Um, seven of those are in the race chair and three in the gym. And the gym sessions are kind of designed to complement the chair sessions to kind of keep me strong enough and in one piece to execute the chair sessions as well as we can. Mm-hmm. And the chair sessions are made up of some sessions on the, like at the track, the athletics track. Um, some are on the road and they're always done with like a cyclist because they're kind of in the cycle path. Um, <laughs> in high, Get out of my way. <laughs> basically, just as a couple of cyclists in high vis so I can do my thing. Um, and then we do a little bit of indoor training as well, which is really interesting. It's where we've made the most like developments in the last couple of years. So we have a treadmill, um, like a giant treadmill, and you can program it to be the elevation of like different courses and stuff. Wow. So you can do hill repeats on it if you want. But what we've been using it for is programming specific parts of marathons into the treadmill so you kind of go up and down like the Boston Hills or something. And then when wow. you get to the actual course, you have that familiarity with it. And then we train on rollers, which is kind of like, um, again, it's a stationary tool. And we often put it in like a climate chamber. So it's a heat and altitude and, and humidity, <laughs> which is disgusting as it sounds. Um, but in terms of like, you know, we're racing in, in Tokyo in a few months. And so we're just trying to prepare for what those conditions are actually going to look like. We do, we do a lot of work in there. Yeah, fascinating. And how is your racing chair different from your day-to-day chair? It's completely different. So the race chair is three wheels and there's... Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. Oh, we'll talk about that next. <laughs> <laughs> there's a little miniature version. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, the racing chair, it, it's a longer frame. So there's um, the two back wheels and they're kind of at a camber at, a, at an angle to make... They turn very, very well with the one wheel out the front and there's yeah. two kinds of steering on it, one specific to the track and one's, you know, more designed for the road. But, yeah, very different chairs. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I actually didn't even... I should be <laughs> looking at them right now. I'm like, wow, they're not even remotely no. similar. <laughs> to each other. <laughs> so this mini mads that we have in front of us, the chair that we just referred to, tell us about this. This is very exciting. Oh man, I feel like this is like the peak of my career and I can retire now after this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all done, all finished. Pretty much. Yes, this is a campaign with, with Barbie. So every year for the last few years, you know, Barbie Australia picks someone to make a doll out of. And and this year for 2020, it was me and it's the highest compliment I've ever been paid. Um, <laughs> I can't even imagine having a Barbie of myself. No, Look, no. it's mini man. I'm looking at it and I still can't believe it either so it's got your beautiful hair (laughs) it's so cool thank you so it's part of the shiro campaign which is she hero so clever and just recognizes women in the community for international women's day who are doing incredible things and inspiring people all over the you know all over the world to be fearless fierce women uh and this is incredible look at it I just I'm so blown away you must be like whoa that's me I know I've seen it a few times now and it's still my reactions I can't fully wrap my head around it oh gosh so yeah what does it mean to have this role and to be part of this campaign it's huge I think it's it's always sport is one of those things where I feel like a lot of us do and don't realize the impact that it has or the reach that it has I think you know it takes up so much of your time in life and I work so closely with you know my performance team and it's kind of a little bubble that we exist in just trying (laughs) to you know get you know whatever gains we can kind of in sport and then I think when you 
you know, put your head up for a second, you can kind of see the impact that it has. And, and campaigns like this is, is exactly that. And one of the, the big things that I think sport is incredible for is the impact that it has mm. on communities and, and the reach that it has. Everyone's involved in sport in some capacity, whether you're competing or in administration or just, you know, watching it or, or whatever, all somehow invested in it and it reaches everyone. And the, the biggest thing that, that I want to do with sport and once I'm done is use the whatever platform that it's built to have a better impact. I think that the direction that that Australia is going is to be one of the most authentically inclusive places in the world for mm. for women, people with disabilities, for for every minority and and I want to see that happen and I want to do everything in my power to be a part of that and and you know to move in that direction and what Barbie's doing with this campaign is is exactly that. It's just create, creating just authentic visibility and and it's it's such a huge platform and to be able to do more and you know I think everything that I want to do is, is so in line with all of Barbie's values as well I think the more I learn about the company the more I'm you know so impressed and amazed and flattered that you know <laughs> I was picked to, to align with that and what Barbie's doing in terms of just that authentic visibility that's such an inclusive range and and you want girls and and every child to see themselves you know portrayed and, and there's kind of two sides to the visibility coin there's one is seeing yourself in a doll I think is so important growing up and seeing things like you is so important but then for your peers to also see yes. you portrayed is so important and that's what Barbie's doing by just having like a really authentically inclusive range and, and yeah to be a part of that is is huge oh congratulations Thank you. Uh, when I found out I was like this is amazing I'm so excited <laughs> that was exactly my reaction too <laughs> and I mean like I've played with Barbie since I was a kid and it, it is one of those kind of staple brands that introduces all of us to dolls and people you know it's such a big part of people's childhoods mm-hmm. and for that point you know touch point so early in our lives to be inclusive is like setting everything up for change and progress I think it's amazing. yeah it exactly it completely is and I think Barbie's really addressing you know that kind of side of things and and one of the one of the huge projects is the dream gap that I've been learning about at the moment it's recognizing that there there is a gap between you know boys and girls as they get older and what they think they're capable of mm. and you know I think Barbie is using the huge platform they have and the enormous reach that they have to really address that and, and close that gap and that's the most perfect use for for a platform like they have <laughs> oh well I'm yeah congratulations I think you are such a wonderful wonderful candidate for the role and Thank I'm you. so excited to see what <laughs> you do with it so the next section as I mentioned is NATA, which we've kind of interweaved a little bit but also if there are any other challenges along the way that you wanted to mention I think this is the bit where often you know this stuff doesn't make the press you, you get all the big headlines you get Paralympics and records and stuff but you often don't hear you know challenges you've had outside your disability for example I'm sure people don't often ask you about anything other than what has it been like to be different <laughs> you know there's also gender inequalities as well as disability discrimination there's self-doubt that all of us have or there's burnout when you're so passionate about a goal a particular physical one that takes so much training like what have been you know those challenges for you and also in getting a bigger profile have you had the problem with building a platform is that you get as many haters as you have supporters and that that can be a challenge as well that's yeah that's actually I think in more recent years been been a big one but um I think the the Biggest challenge that I've had in mind is um, in 2014, we were training for the Glasgow Commonwealth Games and um, it was after I'd, I'd switched from shorter distances and started building for longer stuff and I was by far the, the fittest, the fastest I had ever been and I think I was going into these Commonwealth Games with this is going to be, 
you know, it. Like I was going to, you know, leave my mark kind of a thing. And coming out of the 2012 Paralympics, I'd had a train wreck of a games. I hadn't made it onto the podium. And um, I was determined that this was going to be very, very different. And we got to, um, to we were staging in, in Newcastle in the UK and we got there and I basically got sent straight to hospital with like a 40 <gasps> centimeter blood clot. And oh. um, just casually, just casually. Yeah, <laughs> it was, um, I got oh it on the, on the flight over and um, it was this, you know, massive back and forward, whether I could still race or not. And at the end of the day, the decision was, was to not the, um, yeah, the procedure to, to get rid of something like that very quickly um, mm. was a little bit intense. And so eventually the decision, you know, our medical team made the call to not, but same token, I wasn't allowed to be unsupervised. I had to be with someone 24-7. So I wasn't allowed to leave the village. Normally, if you're injured or not racing, basically you go home, you go on holiday. Yeah, like you just wander. Exactly. Do what you want. Whereas this one, I, I had to stay in the village because I had to stay with the medical team. And so I was rooming with one of my absolute best friends, teammate Angie Ballard, and she was still racing. So it was kind of this weird balance oh, of... Oh, you had to watch it. Exactly, oh. exactly. <laughs> and also like kind of in the week lead up, still be a, you know, give her the environment she needed to be the best athlete. And she's the gentlest, most beautiful person. And so she was worried about me. And I was like, worried about you. Like, this is Com Games. Like, <laughs> this is a disaster. Exactly. And um, I remember watching, you know, from the stands this race and she won. And it was like this, the shortest, most intense roller coaster emotion period where there was this, I wish I'd been in this race and this overwhelming, like, this is my best friend who's just, you know, won this title and her being the most beautiful person in the world. I remember like running to like post event to see her as soon as I can. And the first thing she does is hugs me and goes like, are you okay? Are you doing okay? And I'm like, I love you so much. Like, (laughs) you know, and um, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a rollercoaster. I actually got stuck in Glasgow for three more weeks before I was allowed to travel after that. And um, my sister flew over from Perth oh, and so we so basically hung out in Scotland for three weeks, which was like great. And I, I got home, was ready to get back into training and I had to take another month out. I'd been training for a week and then I spilled boiling hot water all over myself. Oh. And I think I covered like 17% of my body in like <gasps> second degree burns. It was a bit of a nightmare. Um, oh, bad <laughs> run. But with all of that, just before all this had happened, I was wasn't sure how I was approaching the sport if I was doing it right I think we have this mentality around sport and athletes that it's this really intense competitive win at all cost sort of Mm. mentality and I don't really have that and I wasn't sure how to make it work and there was a lot of external pressure um to be that person I would have you know people try to fire me up for before I would race because I wasn't taking it (laughs) serious enough exactly and it would I would just get so confused and I couldn't race when I was you know upset or or angry or trying to be fiery and and trying to work out how to do that and I knew that I loved the sport but I knew I couldn't be that person either and I didn't know how to make the two work and so before those comm games a part of me was I think halfway out the door um on it because I didn't think I could make it work and being forced to take such a huge amount of time you know out out of the chair and out of racing and away from all of it and also watching that race happen and not being a part of it, I, I knew how much I hated that feeling. And um, it kind of forced me to, to reassess how I was looking at it and how I approached it. And I think my, my coach and I, we had a huge conversation going in. I was super open for the first time about all those concerns I was having that I wasn't the person to get the job done. And she has more faith in me than anyone <laughs> I've ever met. And I think despite not understanding my process, because she is that fierce competitor, we kind of sat with it for a bit and she was like, well, how do we make this work? How do we make 
this work for you? And again, it kind of goes back to everything that my mom has done and instilled. And it seemed like the most obvious thing to be like, okay, how do we make this work actually? And, and we developed a whole new process and a whole new approach to, to racing and training, which I've managed to apply, you know, to, to life as well. And, and I just fell back in love with the sport. So while that was by far the lowest point in, in my career and, and, you know, it was really challenging, I think what came of it is genuinely a really a really good thing and I know that sounds like the biggest cliche but no, it was but I think it's because it's true yeah and everything and then how we how we train how we race and the communication that I have with my coach is all kind of developed from that really tricky moment that we had to kind of you know come out of and I'm at the end of the day I'm really grateful for it Absolutely. I think it's a cliche because it does happen over and over and over again that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to build the strongest foundations for whatever comes next. And also that often you have whatever, you know, particularly in sport, but whatever your vocation is, you often have your best breakthroughs after you take time away from it, either forced or voluntary. Either way, it's after distance and like actually getting out of just doing like the doing that you get to think about it and start again yeah and I think it gives you an opportunity to think about why it is you're actually doing something and to reset and I have found now I'm better able to step back and look at why I'm doing whatever it is that I'm doing whenever I start to you know doubt or wonder if it's for me or if you know all the sacrifices are worth it you kind of look back at why you started in the first place and it was that moment you know being forced to take time that forced me to have that conversation and I think going forward you don't necessarily have to have the time off the time or force you to you know have those conversations but if we kind of have them without you know the, the negative reason to do it that kind of negative catalyst I think that's so much healthier and we don't always take time to do that for ourselves no. and <laughs> I think we get so caught up in just in just doing and it's so rapid and overwhelming but taking a sec to work out why and like falling back in love with, with whatever it is you're doing is yeah it's worth it every time. And I I got goosebumps just before listening to you talk about how, you know, it did help you work out what the two things that you wanted to do and how you wanted to make them work together. And I just was like, that's exactly what you were just saying about what your mum did was to figure out the ingredients around her that made things work for her. And it was just, I was like, oh my God, it's all happening. (laughs) (laughs) It's all falling into place. I actually (laughs) had this really beautiful moment with my mum about a year ago, I think, when um, I was basically putting together something to to talk at an International Women's Day. It would have been this time last year, actually. And um, (laughs) I was thinking about, you know, the women in my life and the impact they've had and my coach as one and my mum was one and it was at that point that I kind of realized those parallels between like my sporting world and what my mum has done and I remember calling her straight away to be like you've done this like this is what you did and it was like she hadn't realized that that was what she was doing either yeah. and and it was such a cool kind of to get to tell her like you know that is the person she is and it was I've kind of heard her repeat it back in conversations and oh, it's like that's so I'm so proud of her she's, I mean you can tell I, <laughs> I know yeah. you literally glow every oh, time you mention her it's so she's sweet my favorite person <laughs> <laughs> and I think also in this NATO section is where you really do get to call out the why International Women's Day is so important because it is those really strong role models and supports that we have around us and women and men but particularly women because we just have such unique struggles and just volume of thoughts and doubts and issues in our brains that <laughs> only we can identify with each other. I think most people who are doing great things are supported by an amazing, amazing community of strong women behind them which is why it's so important to be that woman who supports and who is willing to receive support as I well. completely agree with that. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about our community is how willing we all are to do that. And I think we've all had so many similar struggles that it 
kind of comes as a second age and you know how to how to help another woman who's having those experiences. I was on a panel um, yesterday and, and I think Lisa Jones put it better than I could. But basically, I think every woman encounters imposter syndrome more so mm. than, you know, our male counterparts do. And we've all experienced that and know what it feels like. And it feels like we're all just out there sort of trying to make it work, but not really knowing if we <laughs> yeah. are. And um, and I think we, we're also familiar with that experience and that kind of, I don't know, brings us all together a little bit to try and combat that. And it's an awful little demon to have, I think, in your corner about how successful you are. And this is Liesl saying this. She's one of the, you know, the most successful humans I've ever <laughs> met and and she still has that you know Damon I think we all do and I think at the moment women across every industry are banding together in a way that I've never seen before to to combat that and let us kind of just be really authentic and not have to you know justify the space we take up every step of the way which we've done forever and and I love seeing so many women come together to do that and International Women's Day is just an excuse to to celebrate that and really you know amplify that and and I, I love it. Oh, that's so beautiful. And yeah, so true. Just echoes everything that I, I believe about the day. And I'm so honoured to have you on as the guest for, Thank you. for the weekend. <laughs> so the very last section is called Play TA, which is where we dive a little deeper into who Maddie is outside of athlete Maddie or disabled Maddie or role model Maddie or speaker Maddie. You know, there are so many hats that we wear all the time. And particularly when you're as passionate as you are about the things that you do and what that stands for, it's very hard to make any time to separate out who you are when you're just being. Like we're always doing. We're Mm -hmm. human beings. We're not human doings. And yet somehow we (laughs) define ourselves by our output. And I think a lot of people just don't even know who they are outside of what they do. But I'm hoping that you have an answer (laughs) for the way that you play and get back in touch with your childlike self and just enjoy all the things that aren't sport or that that aren't being a role model all the time. It's a big burden to carry. (laughs) So surely you take some time off and do some things to play. um, It's such a tricky one. But I think the, I don't know, the... Uh, thing that's kind of forced me to step back from all of it is I got a dog about two years ago Sebastian yes <laughs> Sebastian and I love him and he was a very rash decision in that I travel so much and I was like I don't actually know how I'm gonna make this work but I was like I'll work that out later <laughs> um, so I have this beautiful little dog and he's a rat bag and he needs so much attention and so much exercise so if I don't walk him for an hour he doesn't just draw an hour he doesn't destroy anything. I'm so glad, but he will just cry. And if I'm like trying to like rest after training, and I haven't walked him. He'll just stack toys on top of me and cry until I take him out. And it sort of forced me to just do something for an hour that that isn't, you know, racing or 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 that advocacy stuff or studying or anything like that. And I use that time when I am out walking him, you know, I call home, my family all lives in Perth still. Mm. So, so I will, I'm on the phone to my family for an hour every day now, which I wasn't doing for the last, you know, three years before, before I got him. And it's just the best excuse to kind of like take time out from all of that. And for a little while I was listening to like my uni lectures while I was walking him and I've stopped doing that because it's just a chance to to not do that but also I feel like every time we try and you know take downtime we feel like we should be doing something else and totally yeah I think we can all relate to that but I (laughs) it's enough that I feel like I'm doing something because I'm walking my rat bag of a dog but also it's it's such a a time that I get for me and I love the little guy so much so I love you know (laughs) being out there with him and, and calling home and it's actually become probably like the best part of my day oh that's so beautiful I and I do think that one of the things we 
fall into as a trap often is that we do think, oh, I'm going for a walk or I'm having a bath, like I'm resting, but then we're also listening to lectures or like business podcasts yeah. or some <laughs> way to learn more or like extend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not really giving your brain a break. That's not really rest. It's just kind of like being productive even more than you were before. That's exactly right. I feel like even <laughs> while like I'm meal prepping or like driving, yeah. I'm like listening to like uni lectures. And I'm like, what are they doing right yeah. now? <laughs> I'm so glad you allow yourself that hour to just enjoy because I feel like we're not built to just work and die. Even if you love your work, it's just not, that's not what it's about. There has to be something that makes you happy and that you do just for joy. I know you like Disney. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I love Disney as well. Um, I have like a Disney related tattoo actually, which I've had since I was like. This is Neverland. Yes. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) It's um, it's actually from the the book. I loved, I loved like Jane Barry's books. Um, So it's kind of from, that was my first tattoo when I was 19. Um, Yeah, no. like yesterday today basically basically (laughs) (laughs) and no I um I I love it and it's you know I think it's changed for me what it's meant you know over the years but it's just this idea of I don't know a place where you kind of get to be you all the time Mm. and I don't know I kind of love it but yeah no the Disney for sure is still a thing I love it it just take it's just beautiful I love it. It, it I think anything that brings back your inner child and reminds you who you were when you were carefree and just playing and twirling around <laughs> and getting lost in the stories. It's so, so much fun. Uh, we have Disney Plus like the day that it came out. Like, oh, my oh my God, God, we're subscribing. Oh my God, me too. No, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so second last question, just to finish up, what are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? And tattoos is usually one of them, but we use that up already. So you oh can gosh. give me three new ones. Three new ones. Um, I've already brought my dog up as well, but I bring him up in every conversation. Yeah. So that doesn't really count. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't very hard to find that information <laughs> at all <laughs> I believe that. um the degree that I'm currently studying is basically my third one because I can't finish anything. So I started <laughs> I started a double degree when I was in Perth. Um, it was going to be secondary teaching and sports science. And I pretty much backed out of it when the travel became a lot because mm. they were quite hands-on units. And the first time that they brought like for the sports science side of things, there was like a cadaver and I wasn't ready for oh. it. And I think I was so shocked. <laughs> Just traumatized. And it's my fault for not reading the briefings well enough. Like I knew it was happening at some point. But I wasn't ready and I walked in and I was like, absolutely not. And <laughs> I didn't come back. Oh my God, did you seriously just leave? <laughs> I called the sports admin like the next day and I was like, anyway, um, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I'm sus, bye. Mm-hmm. I'm out. <laughs> so that's one. Um, so what are you doing now? I'm getting my business degree. So oh, I just picked a couple majors um, like last week. So Yes, I will slowly do that. That's through Griffith University and they've been unreal with helping me balance um, everything. everything. They've been amazing. Um, I love how you're like, in all my spare time, <laughs> I'm doing a degree. Oh gosh, <laughs> I know. It's actually so good though because it helps you balance. I feel like even if I just take time off, I end up overthinking racing. Whereas this forces me to think about like, it's so different. Like I was doing an economics unit and I was like, I can't think about racing because I'm so frustrated yes. with this like, <laughs> unit right now. I don't know what else like a middle name or do you have like party tricks or pet peeves my okay so my middle name is Tate and the reason for this is my older sister's name is Alexandra Elizabeth de Rosario and it's the longest name you could think of and it's because my (laughs) parents were fighting over Alexandra or Elizabeth as a first name and when they hadn't decided and then when she was born 
my mom wanted Alexandra. My dad basically held her up and was like, Alexandra Elizabeth Girozaro, like, you know, agreeing with my mom. <laughs> and then as she got older, like, this is the longest name in the world. We can't deal with so this. So hard. It's so many syllables. And so when they had um, myself and my little sister, we both have one syllable middle names <laughs> and like shorter first names. For that reason, she's Kennedy Jane and I'm Madison Tate. Oh, they both have a really good ring to them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so good. I actually like that. This is the like two syllable, one syllable. Mm. And that is so weird. And this is even weirder that I'm saying this right oh. now, but we're not actually, we're not trying for babies yet. Like we just got married, like it's on the cards, but we already have our children's I names picked that. out. <laughs> and our daughter's name is going to be Elizabeth Alexandra. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because my mum's name is Elizabeth and her hometown that we go, to, we still have my grandmother's house after she passed away is called Alexandra. My middle name is Alexandra. My brother's name is Alexander. And Nick's sister's name is Sarah Elizabeth. Oh, my goodness. I know. So all these names are just like – and we've always wanted to call our child Lily, which Elizabeth is kind of the long yeah. – can be the long version of Lily. So Lily Alexandra. I so love when you that. said that, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> okay, perfect name choice. Okay, that's led me to my third fact then in that case. I found this amazing, like – woman who is now my hairdresser and oh, I love nice. her your and hair knew, is amazing by thank the way. you what color are you naturally like really dark like oh, your color dark it yeah suits you so much thank you even okay so I think you know your mom is meant to love like natural you I went back to dark for like a year and she was like no I hate it <laughs> I was like you're not meant to say that <laughs> this is me oh natural <laughs> leave me alone exactly um but I was like chatting with her for a little bit and then I saw her Instagram and her name is like Alex Kennedy. Like that's her full name, which is both my sisters. And so now like, you know, I trust her with my life. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You're like, this is, this is a thing. It's uh, done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about you, but I will come and visit. But I know her now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favorite quote? Ooh, there's one that's kind of circulating with women in, in any industry and it's, if you can see it you can be it and that just is everything that I think is important to me so yeah that is so beautiful what a wonderful way to finish thank you so much Maddie for joining I'm so inspired by you and excited by everything you've got going on good luck for Tokyo (laughs) thank you you. we will be watching along and I just hope it goes wonderfully thank you very much I cannot believe Maddie is still only 26 years old. I learned so much from her in just one short hour and hope you guys did too. I loved her description of disability as neutral rather than a defining positive or negative feature and I'm so glad companies like Barbie are recognising what a strong advocate and inspiration she can be for us all. As always, please let her know if you enjoyed listening along by tagging her at Madison, full stop, four underscores. And if you're loving the show generally, remember it only takes a few seconds to leave a little review to keep sharing the yay and helping us grow. I think it's such an exciting time to be alive, seeing equality and diversity championed like never before. Some of you might have seen a few of us walking on the first ever beauty runway at VAMP with Priceline this week showcasing women of all shapes and sizes reminding us to celebrate beauty in all its infinite forms hope you are all having an amazing week and a seizing your yay